السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ یو آر چیونڈ ان ٹو چینل اسلام انٹرنیشنل اینڈ دس از دا پروگرام تزکیہ وچ کمز آؤٹ لائف فرام آور اسٹوڈیوز ہیئر ان جوہینس برگ اینڈ وتھ آور آنریبل گیسٹ شیخ کمار الدین آل دا وے فرام لندن پریزنٹلی اٹ از دا فورٹینتھ آف رجب فورٹین تھرٹی ٹو وچ کورسپونڈز وتھ دا سکسٹینتھ آف جون We are waiting your questions, uh, if you have any questions for Sheikh Kamaluddin. The SMS line is 0027-8466-88199. I'll repeat that number. It's 0027-8466-88199. If you have any input for the program, then you may email us at ii at ciinetwork.net. And for audio streaming, you may click on to www.ciibroadcasting.net. Sheikh Kamaluddin's website address is www.islamicspirituality.com and his email address is kamaluddin, that's K-A-M-A-L-U-D-I-N, at gmail.com. Sheikh Kamaluddin spoke to us last week, uh, uh, you know, regarding compromising our amal on the Sharia. It's something we should never, ever do. And just as a person is obedient to his boss, he's in the very same way, we, we need to have the same attitude relating to the commands of Allah. That was a very, very pertinent point that Sheikh had mentioned last week. And he said that we must discipline our, our nafs so intensely. You know that when a person has a nafs mutma'inna, he becomes immune to the whisperings of shaitan. That's beautiful. Discipline our nafs so intensely to such an extent to make it nafs mutma'inna that we become immune to the whisperings of the shaitan. Then so, Sheikh also mentioned that Tasawwu is a perfect ideology to produce that Islam which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala desires from us that can please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So alhamdulillah that was a very very enlightening talk last week and we have Sheikh again online this week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How are you this evening Sheikh? Alhamdulillah. That's good Sheikh. Uh, Sheikh, uh, we've had a public holiday today. The day was a very, very lovely day. And, uh, you know, uh, this was a youth day that uh, many people in our country had celebrated. Uh, so I'm sure quite a, many people will be at home now listening into the program. And uh, what are you going to be speaking to us, Sheikh? I have no questions for you tonight, but if something does come on, inshallah, I may interrupt you in the program and just send those questions to you. So, Sheikh, what are you going to be talking to us tonight about? Inshallah, we uh, can talk about something for the youth, Inshallah. Yeah, inshallah, that will be quite interesting because what happened is uh, in 1976, uh, historically speaking, uh, you know, the youth uh, really confronted the oppressive regime in our country and in commemoration of their sacrifices, you know, this, uh, this uh, holiday is celebrated. But what has happened in recent times is that it becomes partying and merrymaking and celebrating in those particular ways, dancing and things like that. Perhaps, alhamdulillah, this being a Tazkiya program uh, and the inclination that you had, you had made that you may just speak on youth, I think this will be really wonderful for our listeners uh, all over in CII land. So, Sheikh, without further ado, you may just carry on, inshallah, and enlighten us on the subject of youth. Alhamdulillah, I'm 
And he's actually written his own autobiography in Arabic. Mm-hmm. And it's quite amazing the way he, the interesting part for us was when he describes his youth. And just today I was reading that, literally just even, you can say, three or four hours ago. Mm-hmm. And he was documenting how, you know, he lost his father when he was about five or six years old mm-hmm. and how they were different. Uh, ulama who his father had re- realized when he was ill that he was going to pass away the different ulama that he had put in charge and even at the age of five he can remember uh, how much worry and concern his father had mm-hmm. for his son who he was leaving behind mm-hmm. and how all the time that the father spent in the last few weeks or days of his life was calling different of his students and telling them that they should take care of Dilal bin Asuti. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the person who took care of him the most of the Alama Suti was a Shafi jurist, but one of the great Hanafi jurists by the name of Kamaluddin ibn al-Hamam, which is a Shara Bidayah. He was actually the most senior person who was in charge. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because then when the story continues, then you get an incredible glimpse into how the Muslim Ummah used to look after other people's children. Mm-hmm. See, Jaldin Suti is not Kamal bin Abdul own son. Mm-hmm. He's somebody else's. And Kamal bin Abdul was not the student of Jaldin Suti's father. He was like a friend. Mm-hmm. So how much they looked after their friend's children. Because then you see in the autobiography, he goes on to talk about how he did hips. He memorized Quran at an early age. And he completed that when he was eight or nine. And then he studied Arabic grammar, and then Hadith, and then Tafsir, and then Fiqh, and so much, you know, support from these different people. And, you know, he grew on to be one of the greatest ulama in the history of the Summa. And even some contemporary, you know, scholars are always amazed at how much, uh, you know, the sheer literary output, how many pages that Al-Masyutir produced, and how widely they've been spread and they've been published, uh, and all of this was because not, you know, certainly the du'as of his father, certainly the worries of his father, but all of the terbiyah, the tazkiyah, all of the training was done technically by strangers, by mm-hmm. people who were not even his blood kin, not even his uncles. Mm-hmm. That was how precious they viewed a youth. It wasn't something that they just viewed their chi- The reason I'm saying this is today, mm-hmm. the best of us, we view our own children as something that's precious. Mm-hmm. But we've lost that broader feeling which is very much there in the deen of Islam and was very much there in their history, that youth itself, all of them, whether they're our child or not, whether she is our sister or not, whether he is our brother or not, all of them are extremely precious. And I think when we lost that, you know, that's why you find in even many westernized parts of the Muslim world, uh, that even some, you know, people who are quite uh, strong on the dean, they're quite uninterested in what's going on in the youth. And in fact, many times they're so uninterested in it, they're entirely unaware. And I really can honestly say that in Pakistan, in these three major cities of Karachi, Lahore, and Islamabad, the vast majority of ulama, on the one hand, is because of their innocence. On the one hand, it's because they're li- living a protected pristine life in the madrasa, in the masjid, and the Islamic educational institution. Mm-hmm. And that is one aspect to it. But another aspect is also that they are, a lot of them are unaware about a lot of what goes on with the youth. 
mm-hmm. and you know really things and, and I really think that this has been one of the greatest things that enabled shaitan to distract the Muslim youth of our ummah mm-hmm. is that the protectors of that youth the guardian of that youth the ulama of the ummah who used to train and view every single child as a potential future gem as a potential diamond when the ulama of the ummah salaha of the ummah the mashayikh of the ummah stopped doing, you know, stopped caretaking over that critical segment, especially from 15 to 25, then Shaitan took that because that is what I would call the formative years of youth. And, uh, you know, obviously a person can change after 25, and many people do change after 25, but from 15 to 25 is a very formative stage. And when the ulama in Mashai didn't give enough attention to that age group, then Shaitan was able very easily, very swiftly, and also very devastatingly able to take them away from the deen of Islam. Mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah, this is not true for all of the ulama and mashayikh, and there have been a few, and in fact our own sheikh, uh, you know, and the own, in fact my own meeting with our own sheikh is because of this, of the deep and great attention that he showed uh, to university students uh, in America when he used to visit on uh, something that we've tried uh, to inherit from him and to follow in his footsteps. But, uh, you know, really, uh, it was an amazing uh, story of Jalal bin Asiyah just, You know, the life of a young Muslim boy who lost his father, an orphan today, mm-hmm. it's not like it's just 1% different from Allah Masyuti's life. It's radically different. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would it's hard to find even 1% similarity. It would be hard to even find 1% similarity between a youth, if they were to write their autobiography, let's say a 3-year-old, a 4-year-old was to write their autobiography up till now, and compared to what Allah Masyutarimullah wrote about his uh, life from that period. And Allah Masyutarimullah is not so, he's in the 1400s, he was born in the mid-1400s. So it's not, it's late medieval a scholar of the Dean of Islam. And uh, really, I, I can feel that in the last 20 years, uh, things have gotten much, much, much worse. And you know, we've talked about many of these issues on this program, on different episodes, uh, about internet, and about cell phone, about technology. But I think it's also, you know, uh, a lack of productive activities a lack of ilm, a lack of knowledge, a lack of learning, a lack of worth, a lack of value. And you know, I think that happens, you know, when a person doesn't have values themselves, they're not able to value valuable things. When they don't have values in terms of moral, spiritual values of taqwa, sabr, ikhlas, shukr, then they're not able to value the valuable things in this world. They don't, for example, they don't realize that time is valuable. They don't realize that their learning opportunities that they have are valuable. They don't realize that their parents are valuable. And, uh, and they, when, and then when that happens, then they end up leading lives and spending lives that don't have any value whatsoever. And I don't know, you know, what's really going to happen, uh, you know, in 15, 10, 15, 20 years when all of this catches up with us, when all of these people who are 15 become 35 and then the ones who are 25 or 45 in our positions, of leadership and positions of power on uh, different Muslim societies. But at the same time, we have also witnessed that 
you know, this power of deen. And, uh, you know, and I think many, you know, political or secular commentators really like to talk about what they call polarization. And I can say, honestly, I actually, in that sense, can affirm or confirm their observation that there is definitely a clear polarization going on in the Muslim world. In other words, that while we have a very large mass of youth becoming extremely distant from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we have, on the other hand, a number of youth, a fair, sizable amount of youth, an increasing number of youth who are becoming extremely close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, uh, you know, I know some of the Mashaikh have even said that uh, when Allah Taala promises in the Quran that his help will come, it doesn't mean that every single person will become Muslim. But what it does, what it means is that when Allah Taala's help will come, things will become clear. They will become clarity on either side, one way or the other. The gray areas will start to go away. And Iman will become more pure and pristine and more raw. And Kufr will also become more intense and more raw and more unadulterated. And will be less and less types of gray area. Mm-hmm. And in some sense we see that. So, you know, on the positive side, then a person can take hope in the fact that there are now youth who are extremely ardent and sincere and passionate about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the tragedy is, is that they are a minority. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of the youth are unfortunately getting more and more distant from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are few, there are still some few that are in between, right? That are still sort of lukewarm in their faith, not uh, overly intense in sin and disobedience or disbelief. But we've seen the trend is to go one way or the other. Now the reason why I mention all of this is that because that when a person sometimes when a person very rarely very rarely mm-hmm. when a person is aware of these sort of social historical circumstances mm-hmm. sometimes that can help them make the right spiritual choice mm-hmm. in other words that a person shouldn't think uh, especially a young man or woman she shouldn't think mm-hmm. that I can be a moderate Muslim mm-hmm. or I can be a balanced Muslim mm-hmm. she should realize that no, it is actually a choice between extremes. Mm-hmm. And I think the best way we can understand this is that this life is nothing compared to the next life. Mm-hmm. And the real reality, the ultimate reality, the unfading reality, the eternal reality is the Akhirah. Mm-hmm. And in the Akhirah, there is no moderation. Mm-hmm. There is Jannah and there is Jahannam. Mm-hmm. There is no moderate middle ground. There is no balance between them. And then even in these two places, independently, there is no moderate place. For example, there is no light punishment in Jahannam. Mm -hmm. There is no moderate place in Jahannam. Mm -hmm. There is no lukewarm place in Jahannam. Mm -hmm. Even the lowest level of Jahannam is extremely extreme. Mm -hmm. And similarly, Jannah. There is no slight pleasure in Jannah. There is no kind of pleasure in Jannah. There is no moderate happiness in Jannah. In Jannah, even the lowest place in Jannah is a place of extreme joy and happiness and eternal bliss. So when we realize that, that the ultimate reality of life, which is called Akhirah, is actually a place that has been designed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
and will be for all of eternity extreme. That will be for all of eternity either extreme and utter and complete and perfect joy and happiness or extreme and absolute and complete sadness and tragedy. And so now we have to see that our life on this world, if we want to get the extreme gift and mercy and pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is called Jannah, we have to lead an extremely conscientious, taqwa-oriented, sunnah-oriented, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala-oriented life. And this myth that we can somehow be balanced and we can, you know, do some sin and do some, partake of some of the media and do some of these things, and at the same time, also try to hold on to our Islamic identity, that is maybe one of the greatest deceptions of the time. So, this would be my first advice to the youth, that the youth should become extremely passionate about their deen. And that's why Allah Sallallahu said in Quran, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَشَدُّهُمْ مَنَ اللَّهِ All you who believe, you should be extremely passionate. And those who believe, are extremely passionate and intense in their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we are actually an ummah of ashad. We are an ummah of extremes, uh, but in terms of good extremes. Extreme honesty, extreme sincerity, extreme loyalty, extreme taqwa, extreme sabr, extreme liquor, extreme sugar. And then when you think about it, that's exactly how they're taking our youth in the other direction. And this is the second thing I would want you to realize that just like there is no balance and moderation in deen, they should also honestly realize that there's no such thing as balance and moderation in sin. No. A person is being led to and invited to extreme sin, outright sin, flagrant disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is no sin that we can try to soften or dampen the audacity of that sin by suggesting that it's a light or moderate or excusable sin. Every single sin is absolutely inexcusable. So I think this is the first bubble to burst in our youth. That either we come onto the deen extremely or we should prepare for the jahannam extremely. And we shouldn't think that there is some other type of middle or balance or moderate route. And this is, you know, this is what we would call sort of an American, this is a wake-up call, right? And this is exactly what, you know, the forces of government don't want us to hear. And they want to trick a person and to deceive a person into thinking that they can live this life in which they are a mixture of good and bad, and they can still end up in an akhra that is all good. That's not possible. Second, the next thing that we would mention to the youth is, and really for all of us, uh, because you know, <laughs> either we're all youth, or we are all people who fail to do things in our youth, right? You see, like if a person's either a student, or they're a person who never graduated. So it means they never learned those things. They may be 60 years old, but they never learned them. So if we may, no matter how old we may be, if we haven't, if we never learned the lessons of youth, that the Deen of Islam wanted us to learn, and everything we say about youth applies to us also. So the next thing is that we should have more, a much, be much more in touch with Quran. 
and they've said this, but I think it's been a long time since I've said this on this program, is that we should really surround ourselves with Quran. should read, do more tanawati Quran, listen to more Quran, have more Quran CD, have more Quran on the Internet. You know, you there are ways even that you can set your computer up that it can automatically play Quran whenever you go on the Internet. And, you know, although, yes, it is considered greater adab, that when the Qur'an is being recited, uh, that you drop everything else and pay all your attention to it. But some of the ulama have given permission that for a non-live recitation, i.e. pre-recorded, be that tape or CD or DVD or internet audio, mm-hmm. for a pre-recorded, uh, the adab is still there, but the adab is slightly relaxed. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? That you could actually have Qur'an playing in the background when you were doing something, such as maybe writing the email that you had to write to somebody or checking, you know, the directions that you need to check on some website. Uh, you know, you, again, you're not formally talking or, you know, doing something else. You couldn't have crumbling in the background while you're talking to somebody, right? But if you were engaged in a quiet activity, to have the Qur'an occurring playing while you were engaged in a quiet activity, given that that Qur'an is pre-recorded, that would be something that's permissible to do. So as far as the Sharia goes, it would not be khilaf, uh, khilaf, or it would not be makru, it wouldn't be khilaf. And as far as the spirituality goes, not only would it be permissible, it would be highly beneficial. And if we were to do that same thing when a person's walking around, if a person has one of those portable, you know, uh, digital recorders, uh, digital so that they can listen to Quran when they're walking on the streets. Even if, you know, while they're walking, they still have to be aware of other things. Uh, it would have a tremendous impact and we underestimate. Mm-hmm. We take these things for granted and we take the recitation of Quran, the allowance of Quran for granted. Mm-hmm. So whether we can hear it in these ways or we should try to recite it more, and you know, one of the best tips that we have found and if a person wants to recite more Quran is that they should listen to more Quran. And the more and more Quran a person listens to, the more they want to recite. Certainly the men can understand by this example that if ever you are in a masjid and you pray, let's say, Salat al-Fajr or Salat al-Isha behind an imam who has good recitation or you understood something of that verse and it moved you, so right immediately you get a deep desire that you want to read more Quran. But because you don't act on it, and you, you know, then that desire sort of fades away and it cools off. Mm-hmm. So the more you read, the more you listen to good recitation, especially by somebody who knows the meaning of what you're reciting. Because there are two ways that the recitation is good. One is that a person recites uh, in terms of a good voice. The second is that a person recites with a good impact. And that is normally the people who understand the meanings of Quran when they're reciting it. So when you hear that, even if you don't understand the meanings, when you listen to that, then you feel like reading and reciting the Qur'an more. The last thing I would say about Qur'an is memorizing. There's listening, reciting, and memorizing. These three things should always be there. So that it's a mistake that we think that only a person who is trying to become a hafiz should be memorizing Qur'an. And we have just contented ourselves with whatever level of memorization we already have. So somebody may know 10 surahs, somebody may know 20 surahs, somebody may know half a juz, half a 
that we should try, that we should try to memorize more and more and more. And again, anybody who has done this has experienced it. You know, if you memorize even just three ayat, you know, once I memorized about three to five, three or five ayat passage in Quran, and I was, you, you, you enjoy it so much, and when you recite it in your own prayers, uh, you enjoy it, and especially when you memorize it or learn it or understand the meaning. So, even if a person just makes a niyat that they're going to memorize three to five ayahs a week, mm-hmm. then every week they should memorize enough mm-hmm. so that, that they can have one new rakat added to their salah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because right now we have such limited ways in which we're able to pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So a person is not a husband, they have a limited number of ways in which they can pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if we memorize three to five ayahs every week, then that will, you know, and then eventually, you know, if a person does that within a year, they'll probably memorize one or two more just. And that'll enable a person to enjoy the Quran more. Because you always enjoy something when you worked for it, when you earned it. And when you recite those uh, verses, that, and you will find this, and certainly those of us who are a bit older would know, that those prayers that we offer, when we recited something that we had memorized when we were a kid, Sometimes it's possible for our mind to wander during such recitations. But when you recite a prayer, and in that you recite some ayahs that you learn as an adult, because they're more personal to you, because they're closer to you, it's very, when you recite those ayahs, it's almost impossible to ignore the meaning. It's almost impossible to ignore the meaning. It's impossible to ignore the feeling. And then what happens then because of that is that a person ends up Focusing more, concentrating more, feeling more mm-hmm. in their salah. Uh, the other advice I would give mm-hmm. is that, uh, again, to the youth, but also to, you know, all of us who are older, mm-hmm. is to learn to talk less, mm-hmm. to speak less. Mm-hmm. And I think the youth today, you know, when you see them, you know, they been programmed by the TV programs that they watch and the society that they're in to be extremely talkative, mm-hmm. to talk about anything and everything. Mm-hmm. And they don't like the silence. Mm-hmm. They don't like it when people are quiet. Mm-hmm. And if two people are sitting and they're quiet, they think that there's something wrong mm-hmm. and that something needs to be done or something they need to go somewhere, they need to do something. So no, they should learn actually talking less of a virtue. And if there is nothing of benefit to say, mm-hmm. then being quiet is actually the best option. The best option. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, when young people speak, in any case, they can end up getting them, you know, they end up tripping into areas of ghiba or backbiting or slander or lying or exaggeration or misuse of words. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a slippery slope for them. Mm-hmm. They should learn to talk less and then related to that they should learn to listen more mm-hmm. and what's happened is our youth have been programmed in such a way that you know a lot of things that are taking place around them mm-hmm. that are within reach of them mm-hmm. that could have brought them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they're inattentive to it mm-hmm. by not listening to it I mean generally speaking they're inattentive to it sometimes they're even oblivious to it they don't notice it at all they're almost as if they're completely unaware of it. 
when a person learns to become more quiet, they're also more able to absorb good things that are taking place around them. And I would add to this well that all of you should try to keep company with people who are older than them. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the great things that I understood, again, going back to Allah Mazzalzi and Asuti Ramadan's biography, is that he spent his youth in the company of people who are adults, as opposed to spending his childhood and youth in the company of children and youth. And this isn't something unique about him. This is something, when I, mean, I was reading it, but then I started reflecting, that this is a common feature. And this is a very oft-recurring feature that we see in many of the biographies of the great ulama and salaha of this ummah. And when they were young, they kept, they did keep company, obviously, with young people as well, but they kept a lot of company with people who were older. And that is why in our tradition uh, of Tosovos, you know, when a person is young, they're 15, 20, 25, and they take a sheikh, well, first of all, their sheikh is older than them. Second, they will then interact. So in school, you know, they only interact with people who are in 12th grade. They only interact with their age group. But when they're in the masjid, when they're in the madrasa, when they're in a religious gathering, they're interacting with people of all types of age groups. And our Muslim youth who aren't connected to the masjid, aren't connected to the religious gatherings, they end up then only interacting with people who are their age or at most one or two years older. And that's not natural. And the deen of Islam, by making everybody who's, you know, 12 years or older pray together, come together for Jummah, come together for Eid, fast together, and, you know, do their tarbiyah and ta'lim and tadris all together irrespective of age, that was one feature of the deen of Islam. The deen of Islam wanted people to interact, wanted specifically 14, 15, 16, 18, 20, 22 year olds to interact with people who are 25, 28, 30, 35, and 40. This is another thing that is missing uh, in, uh, in you know, many of our youth today. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's, that prevents them from maturing into an adult mm-hmm. much sooner than they would. So there are a lot of, you know, very interesting features that just take place, mm, I'd say, almost automatically in the soul. Mm-hmm. And actually bring a person to the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to be and the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to interact with other people. And again here I would say that when the youth are with those who are older than them, they should follow the first two things, which is one, to try to remain quiet, and number two, to observe and absorb. And you know, you find this in our tradition of the Surah, that the students would always try to observe, observe and absorb from the sheikh. And even if it comes down to, you know, Many times in my life, even up till now, and sometimes especially now, when I'm confronted with some type of situation mm-hmm. or dilemma, I immediately think, you know, have I seen anything uh, in the life of my sheikh how, which would enable to sort of guide me or give me some idea mm-hmm. as to how he would act in such a situation. Mm-hmm. And if I had not observed him, mm-hmm. if I had been oblivious to him, if I had not had the chance to spend time with them, I wouldn't have that answer. I would I wouldn't have no idea. And this is really the youth have no idea how their elders respond to life. They've become completely oblivious of that. So that entire gold mine of knowledge, they it's they've made themselves mahroom or they've deprived themselves of it. They're bereft of it. 
And again, if you look back in the earliest period of the Muslims, maybe I think the first book written of this type is called the Tadqat of Ibn Saad, in which he writes and gathers the biographies of the, of the Tabin and Tabai Tabin. And this was a classical feature of the Islamic tradition, that they used and part of their training in Pabdanaz was to learn and to study the biographies of early people. So much so that for them, another way you can say is history, history for them was nothing other than the lives of lived people. So, for example, the famous history of the Tabari, that's written like a history, the way most of us understood history in English. But Imam al-Bukhari's, his Tariq al-Kabir, his grand history, is almost, not entirely, but almost exclusively just biographies of people. Because for him, that was the history. When he wrote the history, he wrote the history of the lives of the people who lived in that period. That was history. And in that sense of history, we've become very distant from our history. We're not aware and acquainted with the lives of our elders in the past, nor are we learning from benefiting, observing, or absorbing the lives of those who are elder to us in the present. And then when we enter our own future, we won't have any idea how to react, how to respond, how to negotiate, how to settle, because we would never have even observed our elders do that. Mm-hmm. And this is a great problem, right? And I think that's one of the greatest things about the Sawaf, that we see how our Mashaif, with their senior students, how they react, how they respond, how they act, how they interact, and that makes us learn things that we would never, ever, ever have learned if we had only spent time, all the time, with our own uh, age group and our own peers. So, another advice I would give to you uh, is that they should never give up on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they should know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never, ever gives up on them. And, you know, again, in our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we're noticing the wrong things. What we tend to do, and this is part of our ungrateful nature, is we tend to notice, and even not just notice, but notice, really feel sensitively, dwell upon, remember, and reminisce, and constantly recollect those times in our life when we actually felt that we were doing good, we were obeying Allah SWT, we were observing our farais, our wajibat, we were even staying away from most of sins. But even then, this is how we phrase it, but even then Allah SWT did not give us what we prayed for, or what we wanted, or what we asked, or what we wished. This is a big mistake that we make. What we should do instead is we should look at all an overwhelmingly larger number of times in our life when we were lax in our faraz and wajibat, when we were allowing ourselves to indulge in sin, when we allowed ourselves to become distant from Him, we even allowed ourselves to become disobedient to Him, and even then, this is the real even then, and even then, despite all of that, Allah SWT still gave us the things that we used to ask Him for. Mm. And if we were to notice those times, those were so much, much more. Mm. You know, all the time that a student passes, all the time that a student does well, they should realize that, you know, I hadn't studied properly, I wasn't prepared, I didn't do due diligence, I was slack. You know, many of our students in our Zainab Academy 
mm-hmm. uh, Lahore and Karachi and Islamabad are taking exams shortly. Mm-hmm. Inshallah, we make dua for all of their success mm-hmm. and for the success of all of the uh, Talibat and Talabals who are male students in these three cities are going to be sitting for their exams. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and <laughs> really from any of them, and you know, ourselves as well in our own exams, you know, we didn't prepare properly, we didn't value our time, we didn't have the proper other with the ilm, we didn't have the proper other with the teachers. But even then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept our izza, He kept our honor, He kept our grace, He kept our dignity. And so those are the things that we should remember. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that we should feel, especially. Mm-hmm. Not just remember, but you know, this is what I mean by not observing. When we're living that moment, we don't feel it. This is the big tragedy. Mm-hmm. That a person is living and experiencing, mm-hmm. literally drowning in a moment of the fuzzle and kanal of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon them. The grace and beneficence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon them. And they're entirely oblivious to it. Mm-hmm. And when they live through it unthinkingly, mm-hmm. when it's present, you know, if a person is unaware of the present, then there's no way they're going to be able to reflect upon it and benefit on that experience when that experience becomes past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have to really feel it. Even just look at our own Mashaikh, you know, our, I mean, our own being with our Mashaikh, that we can think this, that, you know, without deserving it, without wanting it, without seeking it, Allah subhanahu wa even then, Allah subhanahu wa gave us tawfiq to be in their company. Then once we were in their company, even though we didn't do proper adab, we didn't do proper qadr, we didn't keep in proper rabta, we didn't have proper loyalty, we didn't have proper sincerity, but even then, Allah subhanahu wa let us retain a place in their hearts. So there's so many even thens that should give us, show the incredible love and mercy of Allah subhanahu wa and that would give us such incredible hope. And if we're honest, there's so few even then that a person can really say that, no, I was so good in my deen, and even then, the thing I was trying for, I didn't get. There's so few. Few and far between, maybe even non-existent. Maybe even non-existent. So, we, you know, all of us, but also the youth, should learn to feel Allah subhanahu and so not give up because they should start feeling how Allah Spanta has not given up on them. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the, I think, one of the earliest lessons that the soul tries to impart to a person. Mm-hmm. To try to enable a person to feel and realize mm-hmm. how much Allah Spanta is with them. Mm-hmm. And to make them feel that emotionally and then secondly spiritually. Second, in terms of order, first, and first they feel it emotionally, mm-hmm. and then they feel it spiritually, and then they themselves feel a longing for Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And the youth don't feel that way when you stop one of them and you ask one of them, or you ask him or her, you know, if you were to walk on the campus and ask, you know, you know, just even the question, do you feel that Allah Taala loves you? They would say no. Do you feel Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is watching over you? They would say no. Do you feel Allah Subhanahu has been guiding you? They would say no. It, 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 it's because they aren't aware. They're not tapping into it. They're not feeling it. They're not living those moments. So one of the greatest things the soul does is it opens up a person's heart to start feeling, to start experiencing, to start noticing, to start longing, to start wanting, to start yearning for Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to make that person's heart realize 
how much Allah subhanahu has like, currently wants them and how much Allah subhanahu has always wanted them and how much Allah subhanahu special mercy has always been upon them. I think maybe this last part is the most important thing that are in the, maybe the first step, especially if we have any listeners tonight who are listening for the first time or who are on a very early stage of their journey of discovering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they don't have to look far. They should just look in their own life, not in their distant past, but even their recent past and right now in the current, right now in the present life, they will find so many ways in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is guiding, nurturing, nourishing, sustaining, providing, indeed loving them and us. We make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always keep us under his watchful gaze that Allah subhanahu wa enable us always to remember him to yearn for him that he may let us lead a life of our youth and then our entire life only for his sake and in his name and for his pleasure and may he grant us that special reward that Sayyidina Rasulullah that will come to those who spend their youth in the obedience in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they will be granted the shade of the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the day of judgment, a day in which there is no other shade except that shade that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will decree to be provided. Jazakallah, Shaykh, that was rather enlightening. Shaykh, uh, uh, you spoke, you've given us some valuable advice for our youth. And I just need to recap quickly on that. And the first advice that you had given was the youth should become extremely passionate about their deen. And we are an ummah of extremes, extreme good, extreme ibadat, extreme zikr. And you mentioned so much more that I just didn't have the time to pen that down. The second she- uh, thing that our sh- Honorable Sheikh had mentioned and uh, our young boys and girls who are listening, we should engage in and ourselves and drown ourselves in the Noble Qur'an. The more Qur'an we listen, the more we will want, we will desire to read the Qur'an. So Shaykh even spoke about listening to the Qur'an in Majid, reciting the Qur'an in Majid, and memorizing the Qur'an in Majid, reflecting on the ayats of the Qur'an in Majid. And every time we must be able to learn so much more that we could add to another rakat of our nafil salah. That was very, very valuable advice. Another advice that our honorable Shaykh had given us is to talk less. And relating to that, he mentioned that we should listen more. So we must consider talking less as a virtue. And then the fourth advice for our youth, keep company with those who are elder than you, uh, rather than those who are your age or younger than you. Because then uh, you can learn a lot of wisdom. And Sheikh had given us a quick uh, notable guideline, observe and absorb, especially from your Sheikh. Observe and absorb. And then... uh, uh, the fifth one, and, and that was, uh, you know, a cherry on the top. Never ever give up on Allah, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never ever gives up on us. So that was wonderful advice. Sheikh, uh, I, I remember once, it was, it was many years back when you had spoken to some youth uh, here in South Africa. There's a concept amongst our youth that you have this early period of childhood, and then you go into teens, and then you go into adulthood. What is the Islamic perspective? Is there such a thing as teens or anything like that? 
Uh, no, no, this is uh, you know what we normally use to explain in the spring that there's no such thing as a teenager in Islam. Okay. And by that, what we meant is obviously in Islam there is a human who is 12, who is 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 19, mm-hmm. but the American or Western or Westernized, let's put it that way, concept of teenager mm-hmm. is that age of your life that when you're from 13 to 19, and really they stretch their teens well into their 20s, is that period of life when you are free mm-hmm. and you don't have moral responsibility in the sense that you should do what you like mm-hmm. and drink what you like and eat what you like and mm-hmm. taste what you like and wear what you like and interact with whoever you like. And it's this false freedom that they think that they're giving people. Mm-hmm. And many times Muslims, especially Muslims who live in non-Muslim countries or, again, who live in very westernized Muslim environments in Muslim countries mm. also get absorbed in this mm. and they assume that, okay, from 13 to 19 or maybe 12 to 22, I can experiment, I can explore. And later on, you know, after I'm 30 in my 30s or something, then I can become more serious or I can become on Dean or I can start viewing sin as sin mm. and start leaving sin. But for now, there is no sin because I'm still young and I'm just a teenager. Mm-hmm. So the deen of Islam is no such concept like that at all. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, a teenager is as morally responsible as an adult. Mm-hmm. A 16-year-old or a 14-year-old even mm-hmm. is literally as responsible in Allah's eyes as a 40-year-old mm-hmm. in the sense that they have to stay away from the sin, they have to learn what sin is, and they have to stay away from it altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, even a 14-year-old is as responsible for that. And... Again, like I suggested, that Shaitan mm. either has or has luckily had for him this con- these concepts designed for him. Mm. So being a teenager, again, the, it's the opposite. In the Islamic system, the, it was viewed this is the time to do every type of ibadah. Mm. This is the time to learn every hadith. This is the time to study every tafsir. Mm. This is the time to travel for the sake of the deen. Mm. This is how they said they also viewed that this was a special developmental formative stage, that this was a stage in which a person has extra special physical strength, intellectual strength, etc. And they did understand that in that sense, the power of those years, but they and they, and they viewed it as opportunity. But they viewed it as an opportunity to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to love and follow the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah Jazakallah khil, Jazakallah And two, two of our listeners who are sending a question, inshallah, we're going to carry that forward the next time we are with Sheikh. And Sheikh, as always, we thank you for joining us on this program. And there are so many people we do not see from the studio, and you are just speaking on your phone. But I'm sure that there are thousands of them that are listening out there, and this can be very meaning, meaningful to them. And you mentioned that even if we are in the early stages of discovering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we need to look at our lives. To all of you, I need to give you a very special message the Sheikh had given today when he said, he said, when people don't have moral, spiritual values, then the value of important things are lost. They end up spending lives without any value. There's something we need to take uh, cognizance of. When people don't have moral, spiritual values, then the value of important things are lost. 
they end up spending lives without any value. Shaykh, Jazakallahu Ahsan al-Jazain. Until next time, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep you safe, take you from strength to strength, and make a constant dua for all of us as well. Jazakallah and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.